up, everybody? This is Chelsea Queen, and this is a true crime podcast called Crime in the Neighborhood. Today, we're going to be talking about the Ken and Barbie killers, and they are from Canada. Now, this is going to be a very long episode, as we got plenty to talk about with these two. First, let's start out with Carla Leanne Homoka. Homoka. H-O-M-O-L-K-A. Also known as Leanne Teal. She is a Canadian serial killer and rapist who, with her husband, Paul Bernardo, raped and murdered at least three minors between 1990 and 1992. She attracted worldwide media attention when she was convicted of manslaughter following a plea bargain to serve only 12 years in the rape murders of two Ontario teenage girls, Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. She was never charged with sexual assault due to her plea bargain. Bernardo was convicted of the Manhappy French murders and received life imprisonment in a dangerous offender designation. The full maximum sentence allowed in Canada. <clears throat> Carla stated to investigators that Bernardo had abused her and that she had been unwilling accomplice to the murders. As a result, she struck a deal with prosecutors for a reduced prison sentence of 12 years in exchange for a plea guilty to the charge of manslaughter. She scored 5 of 40 on the psychopathy checklist in contrast to Bernardo's 35 of 40. However, videotapes of the crime surfaced after the plea bargain and demonstrated that Carla was a more active participant than she had originally claimed, including the rape and death of her sister, Tammy. As a result, the deal that she has struck with prosecutors was dubbed in the Canadian press the deal with the devil. Public outrage about Homeco's plea deal continued until her high-profile release from prison in 2005. Following her release from prison, Carla settled in Quebec, where she married a brother of her lawyer. She briefly lived in the Antilles and Guadalupe, but by 2014 had returned to Quebec. Okay. So, this is going to be a story. Moving in. According to Carla, her husband, Paul Bernardo, became attracted by to her young sister, Tammy, during the summer of 1990. This attraction was confirmed by Bernardo to have begun in July during an interview conducted in 2007 whilst in custody. Carla hatched a plan to frame Bernardo for drugging Tammy, seeing an opportunity to minimize risks, take control, and keep it all in the family. In July, according to Bernardo's testimony, he and Carla served Tammy a spaghetti dinner spiked with Valium, stole from Carla's workplace. Bernardo raped Tammy for about a minute before she started to wake up. Carla later stole the anesthetic agent, Halothane, from the St. Catherine's Veterinarian Clinic where she worked. On December 23, 1990, after a Christmas party at the Carla, at the Homoka household, Bernardo and Carla drugged Tammy with the animal tranquilizer. The couple subsequently raped Tammy while she was unconscious. Tammy later choked on her own vomit and died. Before calling 911, Bernardo and Carla hid the evidence, did the laundry, redressed Tammy, had a chemical burn on her face, and moved her into her basement bedroom. A few hours later, Tammy was pronounced dead at St. Catherine's General Hospital. Without having regained consciousness, Bernardo told the police he had unsuccessfully tried to revive her and her death was ruled an accident. 
<laughs> so, right off the bat, we can tell Carla's a cr got some things going on up there. She killed her own sister. <laughs> okay. On, on June 7th, 1991, Carla invited a 15-year-old girl she had befriended at a pet shop to her two years earlier, known as Jane Doe, in the trials for a girl's night out. After an evening of shopping and dining, Carla plied Jane Doe with alcohol laced with halcyon. When the girl lost consciousness, she called Bernardo to tell him that his surprise wedding gift was ready. Bernardo videotaped Carla raping the girl before he himself sexually assaulted her. The next morning, Jane Doe was nauseated but thought that her vomiting was from drinking alcohol for the first time and did not realize that she had been sexually assaulted. In August, Jane Doe was invited back to the couple's residence in Port Deloise to spend the night and was again drugged. Carla called 911 for help after the girl stopped breathing while being raped. Carla called back a few minutes later to say that everything is all right and the ambulance was recalled without a follow-up. Jane Doe survived. Okay. Early in the morning of June 15, 1991, Bernardo detoured through Burlington, halfway between Toronto and St. Catharines, to steal license plates and found Leslie Mahaffey standing outside her home. The 14-year-old had missed her curfew after attending a friend's wake and was locked out of her house. Bernardo left his car and approached Mahaffey, saying that he wanted to break into a neighbor's house. Unfazed, she asked if she, he had any cigarettes to which he claimed on having available in his vehicle. When Bernardo led her to his car, he blindfolded her, forced her into the car, drove her to Port Dallois, and informed Carla that he had a victim. Bernardo and Holkama, Homolka, oh, she's got such a weird last name, videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing Mahaffey while they listened to Bob Marley and David Bowie. At one point, Bernardo said, you are doing a good job, Leslie, a damned good job adding the next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. Right now, you're scoring perfect. On another segment of tape played at Bernardo's trial, the assault escalated. Mahaffey cried out in pain and begged Bernardo to stop. In the Crown description of the scene, he was sodomizing her while her hands were bound with wine. Mahaffey later told Bernardo that he, her blindfolded seemed to be slipping, which signaled the possibility that she could identify her attackers if she was set free or lived. The following day, Bernardo claimed Carla fed her a lethal dose of halcyon. Carla claimed that Bernardo strangled her. They put Mahaffey's body in their basement and the day after, the Carla family, Carla's family had dinner at Bernardo's and Carla's house. After the Homolkos, and their remaining daughter, Lori, left, Bernardo and Homoko decided that the best way to dispose of the evidence would be to dismember Mahaffey and encase each part of her remains in cement. Bernardo bought a dozen bags of cement at a hardware store the following day. He kept the receipts, which were damaging at his trial. Bernardo used his grandfather's circular saw to dismember Mahaffey. Bernardo and Homoka made a number of trips to dump the cement blocks in Lake Gibson. 18 kilometers, 11 miles south of Port Dalouise. At least one of the blocks weighed 200 pounds and was beyond their ability to sink. 
It lay near the shore where it was found by Michael Dowsett and his son, Michael Jr., while on a fishing expedition on June 29, 1991. Mahaffey's orthodontic appliance was instrumental in identifying her. <coughs> Excuse me. Carla was released from prison on July 4, 2005, several days before Bernardo was interviewed by police and his lawyer, Tony Bryant. According to Bryant, Bernardo said that he had always intended to free the girls when he and Carla kidnapped them. However, when Mahaffey's blindfold fell off, Carla was concerned that Mahaffey would identify Bernardo and report them to the police. Bernardo claimed that Carla planned to murder Mahaffey by injecting an air bubble into her bloodstream, triggering an air embolism. Okay. After the hours of April 16, 1992, Bernardo and Carla drove through St. Catharines to look for potential victims. Although students were still going home, the streets were generally empty. As they passed Holy Cross Secondary Church, a Catholic high school in the city's north end, they spotted 15-year-old Kristen French walking briskly to her home nearby. They pulled into the parking lot of nearby Grace Lutheran Church and Carla got out of the car, map in hand, pretending to need assistance. When French looked at the map, Bernardo attacked from behind and brandished a knife, forcing her into the front seat of their car. From the back seat, Carla subdued French by pulling her hair. French took the same route home every day, taking about 15 minutes to get home and care for her dog. Soon after she should have arrived, her parents became convinced that she met with foul play and notified police. Within 24 hours, the Niagara Regional Police Department assembled a team, searched for French's route, and found several witnesses who had seen the abduction from different locations. French's shoes recovered from the parking lot from where she was taken underscored the seriousness of the abduction. Over the Easter weekend, Bernardo and Carla videotaped themselves torturing, raping, and sodomizing French, forcing her to drink large amounts of alcohol and submit to Bernardo. At his trial, Crown Prosecutor Ray Hollihan said that Bernardo always intended to kill her because she was never blindfolded and could identify her captors. The following day, Bernardo and Holcomb murdered French before going to, the, to Carla's family's for Easter dinner. Carla testified at her trial that Bernardo strangled French for seven minutes while she watched. Bernardo said that Carla beat French with a rubber mallet because she tried to escape, and French was strangled with a noose around her neck, which was secured to a hope chest. Carla then went to casually fix her own hair. French's new body was discovered on April 30, 1992, in a ditch in Burlington about 45 minutes from St. Catharines in a short distance from the cemetery where Mahaffey is buried. She had been washed and her hair was cut off. Although it was thought that French's hair was removed as a trophy, Carla testified that it was cut to impede identification. Wow. Now that was a, that, that was a brutal murder. I agree they attempted to kill her. But after the aftermath, there was a publication ban, which I think we need to talk about. Citing the need to protect Bernardo's right to a fair trial, a publication ban was imposed on Carla's preliminary inquiry. The Crown had applied for the ban 
imposed on July 5, 1993 by Francis Kovacs, a justice of the Ontario court. Carla, through her lawyers, supported the ban, whereas Bernardo's lawyers argued that he would be pre-justice pre by the ban since Carla previously had been portrayed as a victim. Four media outlets and one Arthur had also opposed the application. Some lawyers argued that rumors could be doing more damage to the future trial process than the publication of the actual evidence. Public access to the internet effectively nullified the court's order, however, as did proximity to the Canada-U.S. border. Since the publication ban by the Ontario court cannot apply in New York, Michigan, or anywhere else outside of Ontario, American journalists cited the First Amendment in editorials and published details of Carla's testimony, which were widely distributed by many internet sources. On the fan alt dot fan dot Carla slash H-O-M-O-L-K-A. Usenet Newsgroup. Information and rumors spread across electronic networks available to anyone in Canada with a computer and modem. Moreover, many of the internet rumors went beyond the known details of the case. Detail newspapers in Buffalo, Detroit, Washington, New York City, and even Britain, together with border radio and television stations, reported details gleaned from sources at Carla's trial. The syndicated series A Current Affair aired two programs on the crimes. Canadians bootlegged copies of the Buffalo Evening News across the border, prompting orders to the Niagara Regional Police Service to arrest all those with more than one copy at the border. Extra copies were confiscated. Copies of other newspapers, including the New York Times, were either turned back at the border or were not accepted by distributors in Ontario. Gordon Dom, a retired police officer who defied the publication ban by distributing details from the foreign media, was charged and convicted of disobeying a law court order. Wow. Jamie Cameron, professor of law at Oscode Hall, noted that at the time of the Carla trial, three features of the case worried and concerned the public. Little was known about the respective roles Carla and Bernardo played in their actions in the killing of their victims. By spring 1993, it was clear that the Crown's case against Bernardo depended on Carla's evidence. In simple terms, to secure a conviction against him, her story had to be believed. Yet, on no view of the facts that were known, could she be exculpated. <laughs> By casting her as a victim of the predatory behavior, her responsibility for the crimes that were committed could be diminished and her credibility as a witness preserved. Okay, to me, that's just crazy. <laughs> All right, we're about, I don't think we're even halfway. So let's keep going. On May 18, 1993, Carla was arraigned on two court, two counts of manslaughter. Bernardo was charged with two counts each of kidnapping, unlawful confinement, aggravated sexual assault, and first degree murder as well as one of dismemberment. Co coincidentally, that day, Bernardo's original lawyer, Ken Murray, first watched the rape videotapes. Murray decided to hold on to the tapes and use them to impeach Carla on the stand during Bernardo's trial. Neither Murray nor Carolyn McDonald, the other lawyer on the defense team, were deeply experienced in criminal law, and it was only over time that their ethical dilemma 
showed itself also to be a potentially criminal matter, for they were withholding evidence. By October 1993, he and his law partners had studied over 4,000 documents from the Crown. Murray has said he was willing to hand over the tapes to the Crown if they had let him cross-examine Carla in the anticipated preliminary hearing. The hearing was never held. Carla was tried on June 28, 1993 through the publication ban. The court had imposed limited the details released to the public who were barred from the proceedings. Murray said the videotape showed Carla sexually assaulting four female victims, having sex with a female prostitute in Atlantic City, and at another point dragging an unconscious victim in February 1994. Carla divorced Bernardo. During the summer of 1994, Murray had become concerned about serious ethical problems that had arisen in connection with tapes and his continued representation of Bernardo. He continued his own lawyer, he consulted his own lawyer, Austin Cooper, who asked the Law Society of Upper Canada's Professional Conduct Committee for advice. The Law Society directed Murray in writing to seal the tapes in a package and turn them over to the judge presiding at Bernardo's trial. The Law Society further directed him to remove himself as Bernardo's counsel and to tell Bernardo what he had been instructed to do. Murray said in a statement released through Cooper in September 1995. On September 12, 1994, Cooper attended Bernardo's trial and advised Justice Patrick Lesage of the Ontario Court's General Division, lawyer John Rosen, who replaced Murray as Bernardo's defense counsel, and the prosecutors about what the Law Society had directed Murray to do. Rosen argued that the tapes should have been turned over to the defense first. Murray handed the tapes along with a detailed summary to Rosen, who kept the tapes for about two weeks and then decided to turn them over to the prosecution. The revelation that a key piece of evidence had been kept from police for so long created a furor, especially when the public realized that Carla had been Bernardo's willing accomplice. The tapes were not allowed to be shown to the spectators, only the audio portion was available to them. Moreover, Bernardo was, has always claimed that he, while he raped, and tortured Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, Carla actually killed them. After the videotapes had been found, rumors spread that Carla was an active participant in the crimes. The public grew incensed as the full extent of Carla's role in the case was finally exposed, and the plea agreement now seemed unnecessary. However, as we provided in the plea bargain, Carla had already disclosed sufficient evidence Information to the police and the Crown found no grounds to break the agreement and reopen the case. To me, that's just sad. <laughs> that is very sad. Carla's plea bargain had been offered before the contents of the videotape were available for review. Associate Professor of Law at the University of Manitoba explained the continuing public antagonism against Carla. This, there was widespread belief that she had known where the videotapes were hidden, that she willingly concealed the Jane, Do in, Jane Doe incident, and most certainly that her claims of being under Bernardo's control, a central tenet of the plea bargain, were dubious. Speculation was fed by a publicity ban on the plea bargain, which stood until Bernardo's trial.
Print website sources imagined demonic duos, vampirism, Barbie and Ken, perfect couple, perfect murders, sexy, killer Carla, the comic, Carla's Web, featuring Carla's side, confessions, the gay centers, always on Homo Homoka, that Bernardo would be incarcerated for his mortal lifespan, seemed a foregone conclusion. Carla, in the popular view, should have taken her seat beside him in the prisoner's box and seat of ultimate evil. Carla promised full disclosure and testimony against Bernardo in return for reduced charges and a joint sentencing recommendation. In so doing, she escaped central blame for the deaths. In December 2001, Canadian authorities determined that there was no possible future use of the videotapes. The six videotapes depicting the torture and rape of Bernardo's and Holcomb's Homolka's victims were destroyed. The disposition of the tapes of Carla watching and commenting on the tapes received remains sealed. Okay. After her 1995 testimony against Bernardo, when Homoka returned to Kingston's prison for women, her mother, Dorothy, started to suffer annual breakdowns between Thanksgiving and Christmas. The collapses were severe enough that she was hospitalized, sometimes for months at a time. While at Kingston, Carla began correspondence courses in sociology through nearby Queen's University, which initially caused a media storm. Carla was required to pay all fees as well as her personal needs for her fortnightly income of about $69 Canadian. Although she told author Stephen Williams in a subsequent letter, I did get some financial assistance. Carla later graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology from Queen's. News of Carla's educational efforts were greeted in the media with disdain. Nothing has changed concepts of remorse, repentance, shame, responsibility, and atonement have nothing in the no place in the universe for Carla. Perhaps she simply lacks the moral gene, wrote Globe columnist Margaret Went. Carla was moved from Kingston in the summer of 1997 to Joliet Institution, which is a medium security prison in Quebec, a facility called Club Fed by its critics. In 1999, Toronto Star reporter Michelle Shepard came into possession of copies of her application to transfer to the Maison Therese Casgrain, run by the Elizabeth Fry Society, and published a story noting the halfway house's proximity to local schools hours before the Canadian courts issued a publication ban on the information. Carla sued the government after her transfer to a Montreal halfway house was denied. In Joliet, Carla had a sexual affair with Linda Verona, a transgender man who was serving time for a series of armed robberies and who reoffended so that he could be sent back to Joliet to be with Carla, according to the Montreal Gazette. Her letters to Linda wrote Christy Blashford in her column in the Globe in Mail were in French and on the same sort of childish puppy dog decorated paper she once wrote to her former husband, the same kind of girlish love note she sent to him. Her language, Blatchford noted, was equally juvenile. Carla gave him the incentive to finish his schooling. 
Linda said. Linda, who identified as a man and was charged to undergo gender reassignment surgery, said Carlo liked to be tied up, something that disturbed Linda, who was serving a sentence for robbery. He said one game seemed to stimulate rape, the Post reported. The article, along with numerous others, whipped up public opinion as the date of Carla's release nearby. Being evaluated in 2000, Carla told psychiatrist Robin Menzies that she did not consider herself to be homosexual. As Linda saw herself as a man and planned to undergo a sex operation in due course, the psychiatrist, psychiatrist wrote, psychiatrist Louise Morissette, meanwhile noted on his report that Carla was ashamed of the relationship and hid it from the parents and the experts who examined her. The psychiatrist mentions in his report that under the circumstances, the relationship was not abnormal. According to former inmate and Carla confidant Chantel, the son reported, Carla and the intimate stripped at a filmsy event touched with touched one another sexually and exchanged underwear at the same time. Many are told the son. Carla was still in a relationship with Linda, who had spent $3,000 on her at Victoria Street. On December 6, 2001, only seven days before Carla dumped Linda, Muneer said she asked Carla why she continued her relationship with Gerbert while being in love with Linda. Muneer recalls Carla saying, I don't let go right now because I want my clothes and I want my computer. Okay, so in 2008, a letter of apology to her family. She continued to blame Bernardo for her misdeeds. He wanted me to get sleeping pills from work, threatened me, and physically and emotionally abused me when I refused. I tried so hard to save her. Tim Danson, lawyer for the other victims' families, had said that she had never apologized to them. During Carla's release hearing, Morissette said the then 35-year-old did not represent a threat to society. Various hearings over the years have left a mixture of opinions. If she posed any kind of danger, said Dr. Hubert Van Jysom, a forensic psychologist for Correctional Services Canada, it lay in the obvious but not unlikely possibility of her linking up with another sexual sadist, like Bernardo. She is very attracted to this world of sexual psychopaths. It's not for nothing that she did not what she did with Bernardo, he told the National Post after reviewing her file. A scheduled newspaper interview with Carla was squat, squashed by her lawyer. It was not just the facts of the case that shredded Carla's cloak of victimization. Her demeanor on the witness stand had been at times indifferent, haughty, and irritable. Where other inmates might apply for parole at the first opportunity, Carla refrained from doing so because she was deemed a risk to reoffend. She was denied statutory release two-thirds of the way through her sentence. McLean's report in explaining that what, he, what had exempted Carla from the 
parole restrictions meant to ease an offender's integration to, into mainstream society. In 2004, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation noted that the National Parole Board has ruled that Carla Holcomb, Homoka, must stay in prison for her full sentence, warning that she remains at risk to commit any violent crime. While the NPB noted that she had made some progress toward rehabilitation, it expressed concern regarding her relationship with convicted murderer Jean-Paul Jean Gerbet. The NPB reprimanded Carla. You have secretly undertaken an emotional relationship with another inmate, and evidence gathers seems to indicate that this relationship rapidly became se sexual, the panel stated. As a result, it decided to keep her in prison. Finally, in a two-day hearing was held before Judge G Jean Blais in June 2005. He ruled that Carla, upon her release on July 4, 2005, would still pose a risk to the public at large. As a result, using Section 810.2 of the Criminal Code, certain restrictions were placed on Carla as a condition of her release. She was to tell police her home address, work address, and with whom she lives. She was required to notify police as soon as any of the above changed. She was likewise required to notify police of any change to her name. If she planned to be away from her home for more than 48 hours, she had to give 72 hours notice. She could not contact Paul Bernardo, the families of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, or that of the woman known as Jane Doe, or any criminal people, period. She was forbidden to be with people under the age of 16. She was forbidden from consuming drugs other than prescription medicine. She was required to continue therapy and counseling. She was required to provide police with a DNA sample. There was a maximum penalty two years prison term for violating such an order. While this reassured the public that Carla would find it difficult to offend again, it was felt by the court that it might be detrimental to her as well, because public hostility and her high profile might endanger her upon release. On June 10, 2005, Senator Mike Buron declared that the conditions placed on Carla were totalarian, according to an interview with CTV Newsnet. Two weeks later, he apologized. Carla then filed a request in the Quebec Superior Court for a wide-ranging injunction aimed at preventing the press from reporting about her following release. On July 4, 2005, Carla was released from prison. She granted her first interview to Radio Canada Television, speaking entirely in French. Carla told her interviewer, Joyce Napier, that she chose Radio Canada because she had found it to be less sensational than the English language media. She said that she had likewise found Quebec to be more accepting of her than Ontario. She affirmed that she would be living within the province before refused to say where. She said she had paid her debt to society legally, but not emotionally or socially. She refused to speak about her alleged relationship with John Paul Gerbert a convicted murderer serving a life sentence at St. Anne's de Plains. During the interview, her solicitor, 
sat beside Carla, however, she did not speak. Carla's mother was also present, but off screen and was acknowledged by Carla. Okay. So, after she gets out of jail, the national media reported in July 2005 that Carla had relocated to the island of Montreal. On August 21, 2005, Le Courier du Sud reported that she had been sighted in the South Shore community of Longueuil, across the St. Lawrence River from Montreal. On November 30, 2005, Quebec Superior Court judge lifted all restrictions imposed on Carla, saying there was not enough evidence to justify them. On December 6, 2005, the Quebec Court of Appeal upheld Burton's decision. The Quebec Justice Department decided not to take the case to the Supreme Court, despite Ontario's urging. TVA reported on June 8, 2006, that Carla's request to have her name changed was rejected. She had attempted to change her name legally to Emily Tremblay, Tremblay being one of the most common surnames in Quebec. Sun Media reported in 2007 that Carla had given birth to a baby boy. Quebec Children's Aid said that despite Carla's past, the new mother would not automatically be scrutinized. Several nurses had refused to take care of Carla before she gave birth. On December 14, 2007, City News reported that Carla had left Canada for the Antilles so that her then one-year-old could lead a more normal life. She later had two more children. On October 17, 2014, the jury in the first-degree murder trial of Luca Magnata heard that Carla was living in Quebec. A poll of 9,521 voters concluded that 63.27% believed that the public had the right to know Carla's location. 18.57% of voters believed that she deserved anonymity, and 18.16% believed that Carla should be permitted to receive anonymity in about 50 years. <laughs> okay. On April 19, 2010, the Vancouver Sun reported that Carla would be eligible to seek pardon for her crimes in the summer of 2010. Offenders convicted of first or second degree murder or with indetermined sentences cannot apply for a pardon due to the fact that their sentences are for life, but Carla was convicted of manslaughter and received less than maximum life sentence, making her eligible. If she had been successful, her criminal report record would not have been erased, but would have been covered up in the background checks, except those required for working with children or other vulnerable people. On June 16, 2010, Public Safety Minister Vic Toes that an agreement had been reached between all federal parties to pass a bill that would prevent notorious offenders like Carla from obtaining a pardon. Okay, and um, I just want to cite some more documentaries and such that was popular uh, about this case. In 1997, Lynn Crosby, Canadian poet, novelist, and cultural critic published Paul's case turned a theatrical fiction. After systematically analyzing the couple's crimes, it provided an examination of the cultural effects of the shocking revolutions and controversies surrounding her trial. Now, this is something that I never knew. Here was that a 2000 episode of Law and Order, season 10, 
episode 15, Fools for Love, was inspired by this case. The MSNBC documentary series Dark Heart, Iron Hand devoted an episode to the case, which was later rebroadcast as an episode of the series MSNBC Investigates, retitled To Love and to Kill. In 2006, Quantum Entertainment released the film Carla, starring Laura Preppen as Carla and Misha Collins as Bernardo. Tim Danson, lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, was given a private screening and announced that the families had no objection to the film's release. Nevertheless, Ontario premier Dalton McGinty called for a boycott. The film was given a limited release in Canada by Crystal Films. Um, an episode of Murder Made Me Famous on the Reels Television Network airing December 8th, 2018 chronologized the case. And then most recently that I believe was another documentary aired on the Discovery Plus streaming service via the subchannel ID entitled The Ken and Barbie Killers, The Lost Tapes. It premiered December 12th, 2021 and consisted of four episodes. This show aims to look at some of the investigative material never shown to the public before including, but not limited to, home movies the couple filmed and after the murders took place. Every episode in the docuseries can be viewed all at once. The first episode is 56 minutes long, the second is 50 minutes, the third 45 minutes, and the final is 59 minutes, which is three and a half hours long. The series as a whole is rated TVMA, meaning that it is not suitable for younger views and viewer discretion of all ages is advised. And we have finally came to the conclusion of the Ken and Barbie killers. Um, some final thoughts, questions, concerns, <laughs> I guess. Um, would you blame it all on Paul? Or now that we took a deep dive into Carla. Do you think Carla was actually the killer slash instigator in this? And she was just trying to do it to please Paul. I don't know. And another thing. Don't you think the general public should know where she's at? Or do you think not? Let me know your comments and concerns about that. And um, Sorry that this is a long one. I know it's going to take a while, but there was so much information and I felt like everybody needed like all the facts and details in this case. I did pull all this information off Wikipedia, so it should be all factual from what I know it is. <laughs> um, what do you think of the publication ban too? To me, that was just crazy. I've never known them to do that. But thank you guys for tuning in. I'm glad you all took your time out of your day to listen to this episode. Stay tuned for the next one. It should be shorter on Carrie Stainer, an American serial killer. And uh, thank you guys for having listening. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye now.